When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Social Security is one of the most complex and confusing federal programs. With over 2,700 rules, it's no wonder that we're confused about when and how to start collecting and who to turn to for help. Welcome to Social Security Answers from the Experts, hosted by Martha Shedden. In this podcast series, Martha meets with professionals to provide you with the answers to questions about this most important financial decision. And now, here's your host, President and co-founder of the National Association of Registered Social Security Analysts, Martha Shedden. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Martha Shedden, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming Mark Miller to the podcast, editor and publisher of Retirement Revised. Mark is a journalist, author, and podcaster, and nationally recognized expert on trends in retirement and aging. He regularly contributes to and writes columns for the New York Times, Reuters, Morningstar.com, and WealthManagement.com. So Mark, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you, Martha. Glad to be here. You have such a wealth of knowledge on such a wide variety of retirement topics. I can see on the Retirement Revised website that there's just a whole just dozens of um, of different topics. As a recognized expert on these two, retirement and aging, what are the current trends that you're seeing? Are you noticing anything in specific today in particular on retirement and aging? I mean, for the last couple of years, I've been trying to pay close attention to what are the effects of the pandemic on retirement and there are a number of different aspects to that. Probably the biggest one has been this whole question of um, disruption of, of working patterns, you know, the age of retirement, you know, premature retirement, this whole topic of, uh, you know, the great resignation, the great retirement, been yeah. paying attention to that throughout the pandemic. And it, you know, early on, it looked like we were seeing a really big wave of early retirement. It starts to look now like maybe people are coming back to work to some extent. So I, I think that the information on that is still sorting out, but it's been uh, a big topic of uh, interest and concern to me because, and I'm sure you know this, that you know the timing of retirement is one of the most critical factors in terms of retirement outcomes. You know how long you work, when you start Social Security, when you start drawing down savings. You know it's all one big, you know, mesh together set of questions. And particularly when people retire earlier than they had planned to, you know, that can have a, a rather negative effect. So that's been, you know, one of the things I've been paying attention to. I, I write probably Social Security and Medicare really are two of my biggest topics. It's I haven't counted, but if I had a guess, I would say two thirds of what I write about, really, hmm. uh, because I think they're so critical and so important for the majority of households, more so really than anything else I can think of. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've been writing quite a bit about both of those topics over the last couple of years. And some of it 
ties to the pandemic, some of it doesn't. Yeah, and it looks like there may be some changes coming to Social Security. I mean, there's more legislation out there now than I've seen in a long time. So there's always legislation out there uh, with respect to addressing the, you know, the 2034 solvency of the trust fund. Right. You know, when we'll see something move is anybody's guess. I I don't have a crystal ball on that. Um, You know, something will need to happen at some point. (laughs) It better. I'm hoping for that. Um, Yeah. So have you seen a change over the years in retirement financial planning um, are, do you feel like advisors are moving to providing more of a holistic retirement plan? Because I see that interaction between the sequence of withdrawals from which funds and consideration of income taxes. Do you see that improving? I think so. Uh, I mean, I've been covering this area now close to 15 years. And I think, you know, a couple of the big trends that that speak to your question. One is, you know, the growth of the registered investment advisor space, the growth of fiduciary advice, growing recognition of the importance of that. I think more financial planners get it now with respect to the importance of Social Security in a plan, and even to an extent, Medicare. Um, so I see some evidence of those things that I think are really, you know, we've also seen over the course of time, I've been writing about this big improvements in the retirement savings system, you know, the the massive shift to the use of uh, passive low cost index funds, more automation in a positive sense in 401k plans. So, you know, I think there've been some really, you know, good moves in, in the right direction across the board, actually, in the time that I've been covering it. Well, that's good to hear. (laughs) Yeah. Um, What are some of the strategies and processes, if you want to call them that, that retirees should be aware of and plan for as they approach retirement? Because I think a lot of us just keep going and then all of a sudden, oh my gosh, what do I do? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I'm working on a piece right now looking at um, sort of robo-advice and to what Uh, extent does it serve the needs of... um, people who are approaching retirement. And, you know, I think the basic answer is not very well. I think, you know, robo platforms, I think are quite good. It's a good solution for young people when they're sort of just accumulating and it can Mm -hmm. be a good way to kind of manage your portfolio and stay on balance and all that. Um, From my perspective, the transition to retirement is probably the most complicated topic that I pay attention to. You know, if some of it is the transition to Medicare, I think uh, people don't, really a lot of people don't understand very well the complexities involved there and the extent to which decisions you make up front at that transition really can be kind of permanent. I don't think people really understand the the uh, importance of those decisions in terms of their trajectory for health insurance and retirement. The social security transition is an interesting one that we can get into and probably should, uh, you know, in particular for the audience for your show, working with higher net worth uh, people. So they, they do have retirement savings. So that coordination of the timing of a social security filing on the one hand, and what are you drawing down from first? And, you know, we can get into that if you like, but that, that I think is a really big topic for a lot of households. You know, I think the transition stuff is, is really, really important and um, kind of undercovered in, in, my, in my view. 
It is. And it's, it's a scary topic as you're approaching that age. You don't know yeah. where to start, what to what questions to even ask. Um, yeah. And I think the amount of information that we provide to people is not adequate. I mean, you know, it keeps me employed because people like me are trying to explain it to people. So that's, yeah. you know, for me, that's good, I guess. Although, you know, look at social security, you know, you, we have, I think some, okay, so you have financial advisors who can help, but as we know, the total number of house, the percentage of households that are served by advisors is yeah. pretty small, right? Then you have, um, there are some pretty good software programs out there that can provide solutions or advice and guidance to people on claiming strategies, but it's the market penetration for that's not super high, um, is growing. I did a piece about that for the New York Times a couple months ago that looked at just sort of like, what are the software solutions out there? And they got tremendous readership. And just as a quick aside, almost anything I write about Social Security, it, you know, it can be a great story or even not a great story. It's going to get read because Social Security yeah. is just a topic of such huge interest. Editors are always, initially, editors will be surprised when I start writing for them that these Social Security stories get such great uh, readership. And I was like, don't They're be surprised. surprised. It's this, you know, it's, well, you know, well, you know, I think that the personal finance press in the United States, you know, most of it's based in New York. It, it has is. kind of a, it has kind of an investment in Wall Street orientation to it as a it result does. of that. That's so a lot of the editors, they get it over time, but I think initially they're surprised because they don't understand the fact that Social Security is a universal program. Everybody participates in it. And, you know, maybe half of households are participating in retirement saving and investing. So it's just a much bigger audience and uh, everybody's contributing to it throughout their life. So they feel a stake in it. So that's, I think, the reason. But I think I got off track here. <laughs> we were talking about something else. No, but um, I, I so agree with you. And it's most retirees' largest asset. Right. And yeah. they, don't, right. they don't think of it that way. And I, I think we were talking, though, about information and you know the, the need for better information. So yeah. we we're ticking off the ways people can get information. So there's yeah. financial planners, there's software. Then there's the Social Security Administration website, which has a lot of really good information on it, but it's not necessarily easy to get at. And the I think it's fair to say that the the online tool set for decision making on their website could be a lot better than it is. They've got a you know their plate is full with a lot of challenges there. So I just think that that's something that could be a big improvement if we were providing people with better help, whether it's in in person help, online help. Uh, to make optimal decisions about Social Security. And Medicare actually is more complicated uh, in terms of, you know, enrollment choices and all that. So the need for better advice and information is there. Unfortunately, our systems are too complicated. Yeah. Well, that's what we're striving to do at NARSA is to help yes. help everyone with that decision. Indeed. Because, you know, when I first was introduced to the topic, I was so um, struck by the fact that those with financial planners might get advice, yeah. but those financial planners even didn't really understand it. Um, a lot of people go to their CPAs uh, to ask questions, and it shouldn't be dependent on how much wealth or assets under management you have. So uh, right. like you said, it's a universal topic, and the incorrect decision can just add up to hundreds of thousands of dollars lost. No doubt. Time. Yeah. And I think the, the kind of the gut decisions people make when it's not an advised decision are often are the wrong decisions. You know, it can yeah. be based on something like fear that Social Security is going to evaporate. 
you know, and it's going to go bankrupt and go away. And so therefore I should file as quick as I can is a good example, or just sort of a, you know, show me the money kind of an instinct. It's mine. Let me have it. Yeah. Without stopping to understand what the numbers really look like in terms of, right. you know, the increase in monthly or annual benefit you can get by delaying. Yeah. Uh, so don't, you know, the, the delay strategy is not, I don't think a natural human instinct. <laughs> it is not. It is not. Oh, that was also, you know, when you tell people that it might be smarter to draw from your IRA in the initial yeah. years, let's say you're retired at 62. So you need money to live on. So where's it going to come from? Come from social security, it can come from your savings. Tell people you might be smarter to be drawing out of a tax deferred account at this point while your bracket, you're in a lower bracket. Yeah. Get to, let's get start getting some of that money out of the tax deferred account while you wait to file for social security, adding to your monthly benefit to the tune of give or take 8% a year. You know, it's pretty, the math is very compelling uh, for most people, not all, but for most. It is. It really helps to show people the numbers. Right. And And I think some of these software tools are good at that. You know, it can really give you an illustration. Oh, they're actually, you know, based on, you know, you're doing this guesswork on likely, you know, longevity is always kind of a wild card in the mix, right? But, you know, assuming sort of normal things happen, and especially for married couples, it's the math, the math is compelling when you do a coordinated strategy. Right, because then that survivor benefit comes into play. And we, we actually look at different life expectancies. And when you look at different life expectancies, analyzing for couples, you sometimes find that waiting till 70 isn't the ideal situation. So right. you cannot figure this out without the software. Yes. It's, it's definitely critical. Um, yes. What is your definition of making a smart social security claiming decision? Well, I mean, I agree with what you just said. It has to be personalized to the situation. I think if you had to make a rule of thumb statement, later is better for most people. That's true. And when I say that, people often hear it as you must wait until 70, but that's not really the message. You know, I think the majority of people, the social security data show that um, most people have claimed by their full retirement age, which is 66. And by the way, that's a term that's confusing, right? Full retirement age. What a confusing, wonky sounding (laughs) term, right? I mean, people like you and I kind of know what that is, right? It's the yeah. age at which you're entitled to 100% of what you're, you're earned benefit. Your PIA, which is why PIA. Right. Why yeah, it right. Into even more of this, you know, or now you get into AIM. Oh, my goodness. Oh. So um, <laughs> so most people have filed by their, their full retirement age. So that's telling us that, you know, even just waiting to FRA is really a good thing. And if you can wait a couple yeah. extra years beyond that, so much the better. It's going to work out in most in most cases, I would say. Yeah, outside of just the age. Um, yeah, yeah. To decide how else should people contemplate that relationship right. between yeah their other retirement planning. Right. So and this is something you know. I'm publishing a new book on retirement security that'll be out next January, and I hope I'll be able to come back and talk to you about that. But the whole theme of it, it's really aimed. The book is aimed at people who are getting close to retirement without a lot of savings. So people who are facing some issues in terms of, and when I say issues, to me, the definition of success in retirement is just all about your ability to maintain your standard of living in retirement. It's that simple. 
So if you're looking at replacement of pre-retirement income as a decent measure of that, you know, the traditional rule of thumb is you need to replace maybe 70% or a little more than that of your pre-retirement income. You know, that's not going to be universally the case, but that's sort of the, the yardstick. And it's a decent starting point for thinking about this. So if you think that you're going to get, we know that social security is going to replace something like probably for most of the folks who work with financial planners is going to replace a little more than 30%, right? right? 35, maybe lower income households, more 40, 45. So the question is, and then if you're of course in a married, married household, you got two checks. So that that's helpful. But then the question is how do you fill the gap? to maintain a standard of living. So that's where questions like savings come in, use of home equity, working longer, working in retirement. That's to me, the big picture, it's simple. Standard of living. Can you do anything to reduce costs? This is often something people don't think about. It's all, all about, well, this is what I'm spending. How do I replace that? Yes, but maybe you could do something to change the spending. So th- that's really it in a nutshell. You know, you just, how am I going to maintain a standard of living in retirement? It is. It is. And there, there's kind of a fallacy that our costs will go down. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially in those first years of retirement, don't you think? There's, we're still active and we still want to travel. And, you yeah. know, you're going to replace some of the work-related costs, but you're going to be doing these other things that hopefully that you plan to do as you retire. I mean, there's a lot of good research on this, that it's kind of a variable, you know? Uh, Yes. Early on in retirement, more active years, some spending is going to go down. You know, you're not, you're not paying payroll taxes anymore. For example, you're probably not contributing to your retirement account. Um, Maybe other work-related costs go down before the pandemic. We would say, well, commuting costs went away and you don't need to be buying dress clothes. Now (laughs) those are out the window anyway, it seems like. (laughs) So yeah, some costs will go down, but yeah. So the research says that people tend to spend more in the early years, then that falls a bit. And then, but then there can be a big jump at the, towards the end of life if healthcare needs accelerate long-term care needs. So, you know, it's not a straight line. That's, I think what's clear. It's not a straight line and insurance can help smooth out some of this by which I mean, social insurance, social security, Medicare, Unfortunately, we don't have a real good system for long-term care insurance in the United States. If we oh. did, that would be really great because it would really help take some of that risk out of the, the equation of, you know, well, what is my need going to be? It's an unknowable. It is. And it's the most anxiety producing topic about retirement is healthcare. I think. And yeah, and, the, and long-term care insurance, you know, the, the commercial market for that is just a mess. You know, it's, um, it, it's shrunk a lot kind of dysfunctional. It's uh, it's really an odd thing. It's the ideal audience is sort of middle-income households that really can't afford the premiums. Um, high-income households probably can afford the premiums, but don't need it as much because they can more readily self-insure. Low-income households have access to Medicaid, which does fund long-term care. So it's <laughs> it's not a system that's uh, doing the job. No, we we really, the whole time I've been covering this, I've been waiting for something to happen on it and it doesn't. Yeah. Well, in relationship to today's uh, climate with rising interest rates, uh, potential real estate bubble, and there is an emphasis that people put on real estate as an asset. What are your views on how people should look at property ownership and its relationship to retirement planning? Well, home equity 
is very often the largest source of saving you know, on a household balance sheet, especially middle income and, and even middle lower. Um, and so it can't be ignored as, a, as an asset uh, in, in retirement, especially for households that don't have a lot saved. So I, I actually address this in a chapter in the book, you know, ways to tap home equity. It's obviously not the same kind of liquid asset that, you know, as say funds in an IRA are. But, you know, so I go through the, all the math on things like reverse mortgages, but also the, just the idea of downsizing and extracting equity from a home, which I think is actually a better option in many cases. It's a less costly option from a fee standpoint than, than reverse loans. But I do think that it's sensible to take a look at. The problem with it is, is it's not only an illiquid asset, but it's a situation of um, there's a lot of emotion and social issues tied up. People don't, are not necessarily that eager to pick up and move. Mm-mm. in retirement. And that can mean moving different community or even staying in the community, moving to something less expensive. But I always suggest that it's something worth thinking about if you're, if you're in a pinch, because it is an important asset for many people. As far as the, you know, the current economic climate, I just, I don't, cannot recall a time of more uncertainty yeah. about the economic outlook. And it's, it's very unsettling. And I, it's hard to know where things are going. It seems like we're in, now in a period of higher inflation that's going to be sticking for a while. Mm-hmm. That has implications, certainly for Social Security, and a positive implication in terms of uh, larger colas and the like. Mm-hmm. Uh, higher interest rates are, in some respects, beneficial for retirees who haven't been able to get any kind of return on fixed income and assets for you know many years. So you know, if if higher interest rates are here to stay, at some point you would let you think we'll start to see higher rates on things like CDs and, you know, bond returns and the like, that would take more time because those kind of come up more slowly than, than unfortunately than borrowing rates. Hmm. But it is, it is an incredible amount of uncertainty. I think um, the stock market continues to defy logic. (laughs) I think, I think, you know, there's a really interesting discussion about what's an appropriate percentage of assets for people close to retirement or in retirement to have in equities. I look at the target date funds as sort of a proxy on this for what the big investment companies think. Mm-hmm. And they all think you still have a lot of money in stocks. <laughs> you know, the target date series at the point of retirement are typically well over 50% in equities. Some of them are close to 60. To my mind, that's too high. Yeah. What I mean, do you th- again- I know what you think about that, but I think that's just too well, much risk in my view. Yeah, it's a again another really personal decision. On the other hand, we are all living longer and there's a certain amount risk that historically it was assumed, you know, you'd switch over to more stable right uh income in retirement and that, you know, if you're in your 60s and you might live another 20 or 30 years, you want you still want it to grow. Yeah. But it's No, I mean I think you need to have some part of the portfolio for sure, staying right. stocks, but whether it should be as high as 60 is what I'm not so sure about. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. It is a personal decision, how much risk you're willing to take. And, you know, another important, going back to your point about holistic planning, you know, you need to look at everything. So yeah, how much risk you can take in the market is affected by how much guaranteed income source you can expect. So mm-hmm. that's social security. Maybe there's a defined benefit pension coming. So if you have a lot of guaranteed income coming into your household, that's 
you know, would say you could afford to maybe take a little bit more risk in the stock market. So yeah, it has to be part of the right. overall big picture, I would agree. Right. Um, talking about Medicare again, what changes do you see that are being proposed that people should be aware of? Um, is Medicare going away or do these changes just keep happening as, mm-hmm. you know, as a reaction as we go yeah. along? Well, one very immediate thing that I'm keeping an eye on, which is, I think, of interest to listeners, is um, whether we might see kind of an unprecedented mid-year reduction in the Part B premium this year. Well, the Part B premium was a big increase this year because of the expected spending on this controversial new um, Alzheimer's medication, Adjuhelm. And Medicare made the decision, actually, the final announcement was just made a couple of days ago, that they're not going to be covering it in a widespread way. They're going to only cover uh, use of it in clinical trials. Uh, you know, the increase was predicated on expected spending on this drug because it's a, it's a Part B administered drug in the sense because it's uh, administered in a doctor's office. So it's not covered under Part D, you know, the prescription drug, but rather Part B. So um, Medicare right now is evaluating a possible reduction in this year's premium which it would be, un- as far as I know, That's unprecedented. Yeah. Uh, and it should be done because it's, it was an enormous increase and there's no reason for it that's, 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 that's apparent at this point. So, right. you know, how much of a reduction isn't clear, but it you know, could be on the order of, you know, 10 bucks a month or something. And then they'd have to figure out how to basically rebate that uh. for what's been paid already. <laughs> so, you know, it can be done. But so that's one thing to watch for. The other, you know, kind of big top, and I think actually before shifting gears, I think this Agihelm thing points to a problem that's going to come up again in Medicare because, you know, with the, what's going on with the cost of prescription drugs, especially these sort of specialty drugs that can be very high priced, really poses a threat to the stability of Medicare. And we need to get a handle on that somehow because this, this won't be the last time that right. something like this comes down the pike. Setting that aside, the other big topic I'm paying a lot of attention to on Medicare is just the ongoing privatization of the program. And there's a couple different facets to that. One is almost without any real public policy discussion, we've seen the privatization of the program via a Medicare Advantage. So, which I'm sure a lot of listeners know what we're talking about here, but this is sort of the, it's a commercially offered managed care all-in-one alternative to the traditional fee-for-service Medicare program. So you join uh, like a PPO or an HMO version of Medicare and all everything is managed through that insurance company. It's on track to be about half of all Medicare enrollment by the end of this decade. And there are reasons to be concerned about that because like all other forms of managed care, it comes with some pluses and minuses. The plus is that many people enroll in these things enjoy lower premiums, but there's a lot of accumulating evidence that that's done at the expense of um, of care. You know, there's a lot of uh, denial of care that occurs for people in advantage plans, especially when more complex, expensive um, procedures come up. You have limitations on networks of providers, you can see. So I have a, I have a lot of concern about what the meaning of that is. And then on top of all that, and this is a topic that hasn't gotten a lot of attention yet, but is starting to, is uh, Medicare is uh, advancing a plan to essentially add a Medicare Advantage-like 
feature into the traditional program. Uh, these are called accountable care organizations. It's a little different than Medicare Advantage, but it's being rolled out uh, starting this coming year. It's been kind of done in a pilot phase up till now. But basically the, what they will be doing is people who are in traditional Medicare can be enrolled in one of these uh, ACOs without their consent or choice. Uh, you can move out of it once you're into it, but that's that's a destabilizing uh, circumstance. And so when you're enrolled in an ACO, that's a group that is responsible for managing your care. It's typically um, a healthcare organization, but many of them are owned uh, by private investors. Um, private equity firms are getting into this. Um, the big commercial insurance companies that are big players in Medicare Advantage are getting into so some profit motive being injected there. And the concern is what is the meaning of all that for the future of traditional Medicare? So if we could wind up spinning forward a decade from now where private interests basically are managing all aspects of Medicare. And I, I don't think people have quite gotten their head around what that could mean yet. So I think that's a big story. I've done some writing about it. Some others have, but it's not getting the kind of widespread attention yet that I think it needs to. No, it's not. And the really startling part about it is that if you're in traditional Medicare, you can find yourself enrolled in one of these things. How can they do that? So what happens is, let's say, um, where, whatever city or region you're living in, uh, and you use certain healthcare providers, Medicare is looking at uh, the records of your claims. And if there's a, an ACO in your market that's a match for doctors you're seeing, they'll, they'll assign you to this ACO. You'll get a letter in the mail saying, uh, Martha, you've been assigned to the XYZ uh, Accountable Care Organization, and your care will be coordinated through these things. Now, you can opt out of it. You'd have to go find a new physician uh, who's not part of an ACO. So do you want to leave your doctor over this? Probably not. So it's kind of insidious in that way. And I think a lot of people, when they hear about this, their eyebrows really shoot up because yeah, uh, you know, you've made that initial decision at the point of enrollment. Do I want to be in traditional Medicare versus an Advantage plan? And now suddenly you find yourself in something that's kind of walking and talking a little bit, a little bit like an Advantage plan. So you know, the ACOs are networks of providers. And so the concern is that the financial incentives will all be to stay within that one network. In its defense, I mean, I think there's some arguments. The accountable care organization model has its defenders, and there are some, I think, valid uh, arguments in their favor in terms of coordination of care. You know, they have the potential to improve outcomes in some cases, but you have to look kind of under the hood to see who's running these things and what are they in it for. You know, the last time I checked, the private equity firms weren't really you know, motivated to be in the healthcare right. business to provide no. good, great care to people. So they're there to make a profit. That's their business. So yeah. injection of more profit motive into healthcare is sort of the, the headline. That's unnerving. Well, and that the costs have been rising at a rate higher than social security. Yeah. Uh, and that affects our social security benefits. Um, I don't know if our listeners understand, but there is a hold harmless clause on that. Do you see any changes happening soon related to that whole topic? Not really. I mean, I think that's a good provision that protects people from any net de decrease in their social security benefit due to an increase in the Part B premium. I think the, the rising costs in Medicare are just kind of reflective of what's going on in the, in the healthcare sector generally. 
Right. So when I was mentioning before, the need to get a handle on things like rising prescription drug costs, I think that's a good example there. Yeah. But, um, you know, Medicare being the largest, you know, very large payer is just going to reflect what's going on in the healthcare economy. In your newsletter and podcast, what issues surrounding Social Security and retirement are people asking questions about or should be asking questions or have just big misunderstandings about? Well, on the Medicare side, I think it's the topic we just discussed, getting a better understanding of the trade-offs plus minus of traditional Medicare versus uh, Medicare Advantage, and and also understanding that a decision to enroll in Advantage at the point of when you first sign up for Medicare can be a more or less permanent choice. Because when you're in traditional Medicare, you're going to want to have a Medigap supplemental plan alongside of it. And the right time to get that is when you first sign up. Because when you first sign up for Part B, there's a guaranteed issue uh, period where you get uh, Medigap cannot, providers cannot turn you down due to pre-existing condition and they have to offer the most favorable prevailing prices. So that's the right time to get a Medigap. Um, going into Medicare Advantage, but then later on, a year or two later, let's say, deciding you prefer to be in traditional Medicare, yes, you can uh, bail out of that and get into traditional Medicare, but you may have an issue getting a Medigap. So you know, I wish people would understand that more, that, that that's a decision to think carefully about at the point of initial uh, sign up. On the social security side, I think it's just always this, uh, this claiming question and, and thinking through that and, and how, to, how to best analyze that. Yeah. I get a lot of questions and complaints and this and that about the COLA, the annual COLA. People are never happy with the COLA, yeah, even though it was, you know, it was gigantic this last year, but you know, a lot of it did get eaten up by the Part B uh, premium increase. I think the Social Security COLA is something that I'd like to see addressed. I'd like to see it, it improved and beefed up. A misunderstanding out there about that is, you know, there's this um, alternate measure called the CPIE, which is uh, an, an index used that aims to do a better job of capturing the costs that affect seniors, chiefly healthcare. And it, it actually, when you look at its track record over decades, Sometimes it does better than the regular than the current CPI and some uh, coal, excuse me, and sometimes it does not. Um, yeah. The analysis of this last cola is that if we'd been using the CPI E, the cola would have been smaller because right. of the huge role that energy played in this year's cola. So there's not a simple answer here, like oh, let's shift to the CPI E. No. It probably needs a a new kind of. Uh, evaluation to figure out how to do a better job with that. But I'm sympathetic to the idea that we could do better on keeping people whole on the COLA. Um, A lot of people don't realize that the COLA wasn't always there as an automatic feature. It's only since the mid-1970s. And the record before that was really pretty dismal in terms of these kind of sporadic increases that Congress would grant. Um, A lot of it would be sort of political showboating and um, so, you know, we have a much better system now that's, you know, tied to an automatic formula and it happens every year. Yeah. So that's the good news on the COLA. There is one. You know, it's it's the only system I can think of in our retirement system that actually has an inflation adjustment. I mean, it's, right. it's really terrific that that yeah, happens. Yeah, the, the days of, of pensions with COLAs is going away quickly. Yeah, and inflation just wasn't a topic for the longest time, right? 
But guess yeah. what? It is again. <laughs> yeah. When you look over the history of social security, um, that's something we, we teach in our course. And you do see these uh, major changes that have been made. I mean, 86 years is a long time for a program or 87, I guess now this year, but there's been some amazing good changes. Yeah. Uh, that, sure. That's what makes me hopeful for the future. Yeah, definitely. Um, can you share with our listeners something uh, that you've learned or experienced or discovered that they would be surprised to know about? And that can be anything over your career. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if this would be surprising to people given the conversation we've just been having, but I think over the course of time that I've covered retirement, I come out of a background uh, most of my professional background before I was doing this particular work was in business and financial news. And I think kind of this thing that surprised me most over the time that I've been researching, writing about this topic is just the, the primacy and importance of social insurance. And I get into this in this book that I'm going to publish next year. Um, the more I've covered it, the more I understand the importance of that as compared to, um, say, the retirement savings system or any of our more commercial components yeah. of the system. The further I go, I go along, the more important I see it. And, um, you know, I think just the general view out there is that, you know, this is all about retirement saving and investing. And, you know, it's really only true for a percentage of households, less than half for sure. Right. And then that decumulation, that's a really tricky puzzle to, yeah. to do that correctly. For sure. Um if you had the power to decide how to extend social security uh, for the indefinite future, what, mm -hmm. what changes would you make? Yeah. Well, I mean, I would first, I would quibble a little bit with the word extend, because I think even if we get to 2034 and the trust fund is exhausted, social security continues it would right, be right. paying a lower benefit, but it's um, they, they, so the question in my mind is how do we come up with solutions that, allow us to keep benefits at the current level, which That's is correct. absolutely, absolutely critical. Yeah. And by the way, I think that will happen. And the reason I think it will happen is um, really a political uh, evaluation. In other words, considering the popularity of social security, uh, I just have trouble imagining Congress not doing something to, to fix the problem that's there sometime before 2034. So I do think it'll happen. I think you know, the changes that I would wish for on Social Security to, to solve the issues, one, I would probably look at lifting uh, the cap on wages that are subject to FICA to some higher level, uh, possibly some kind of gradual increase in FICA rates over time, you know, very small uh, amounts on an annual basis. I would also favor allowing the Social Security Trust Fund to invest at least part of the portfolio in stocks. That's kind of a uh, a restriction that is, uh, I think, unnecessary, unnecessarily ties Social Security's hands behind its back in terms of returns. And I don't think one has to be too extreme here, but just some reasonable portion of the trust fund, I think, could be invested in stocks quite safely and would improve the finances of the program. Just to be clear, I'm not suggesting that that be done on any kind of individual basis or account no, basis for no. people. I'm talking about the management of the trust fund, just in the right. same way that a private uh, pension system is managed. You know, exactly. the professionals invest the fund in a, a wide array of different types of investment types. And I think it would be prudent to do that with Social Security. And then I think on the benefit side, um, 
again, we talked about this. I'd, I'd look for an improvement in uh, inflation protection. I think uh, a modest across the board benefit increase would be good. I, I would also target some increases to people who need it the most, um, like people who take time out of the labor force to provide care for others. And then as a result, their benefits are lower. Uh, increased survivor benefits, um, higher minimum benefit levels for low-income people. Um, and outside of that, I think we need to do some things to um, allow the Social Security Administration to do its job better. Coming out of the pandemic, you know, they're getting ready to reopen the field offices, but the Congress has not done a good job of funding the, just the administrative budget needs. I shouldn't even say funding because the, the dollars come out of the um, the FICA tax, but Congress, yeah. Congress approves the budget, uh, and right. they don't. They, they have not done a good job of consistently giving the SSA the dollars it needs to serve the public, and it's it's critical that that, that be done. I, I think that um, in addition to funding their needs in terms of people, that there should be we should restore the mailing of the annual Social Security benefit statement, which is right now received only to a small percentage of the population. It's a really dumb a dumb budget cut. You know, that's a useful uh, annual reminder that people get of what their benefit is likely to be and all kinds of useful information about Social Security. Uh, We talked about the need for better online decision tools. I would do that too. So, you know, I think there's a number of things we could do to improve the program. It's a great program. I think Social Security is, um, in my view, is like one of the most important uh, public policy achievements in this country's history. And it can all you've, you mentioned it's been amended and, and, and tweaked numerous times over the years. And it should be again. I think there's some time for some smart improvements that could be made uh, to a great program. Yeah. A lot of those items you mentioned are in the Larson 2100 yeah. Sacred Trust. They are. And uh, there, some of it's also been in President Biden's proposals on Social Security. Mm-hmm. So those are. Yeah, those things I just ticked off are all kind of middle of the road, you know, moderate uh, expansion proposals. Right, but together with you know they can make a huge difference. And the thing that I think would not like to see happen is uh, any further increase in retirement ages. And this is a seductive argument. The the argument is, well, we're all living longer, therefore should we should raise the retirement age. And what I think people don't get about that is the the fact that. When you increase retirement ages, it is, in fact, a benefit cut, because what you've done is raise the bar of what it takes to get your full benefit. And so the way it works, it effectively is a benefit cut. And if you don't believe that, stop and ask yourself, if it's not a benefit cut, how does it improve Social Security's finances? Yeah. And, and people it is can't, yeah, they can't, a lot of people can't continue working past 62 or. Right. So it's a blunt instrument. So like yeah. for people who are high income professionals, yeah, they're probably going to work, you know, well past traditional retirement age, likely to beat the uh, longevity averages and all that. So yes, there's a segment of the population for whom a higher retirement age wouldn't really hurt much. But it would be uh, very damaging for the majority of households in the United States. I don't know if you think about this, but I wonder what doing away with the earnings test between age 62 and full retirement age would do. I haven't seen that addressed. That's a real stickler with uh, people that takes them by surprise. And especially recently with the pandemic, 
like you mentioned, a lot of people, they had to quit work or they were forced out and then there's taking social security and then they get, they go back to work and boom, they're stuck. Yeah. I I think you, there is a way to reverse that, but again, it's complex and uh, I think it would be a good thing to eliminate. I don't think it's a big factor one way or the other in social security's finances. I I mean, just in general, I'm generally in favor of simplification. Yeah. You know, it's, I, it's just such a, you know, it only applies to a certain group and it's, yeah. just, it's an annoyance. I think. I'd be in favor of that. I, I would be in favor of getting rid of the much hated uh, WEP GPO, WEP GPO. provisions, yes. which was- makes sense to people uh, who are policy experts on this stuff. I mean, I, you can stand on one leg and make an argument for it. Most people just, it makes absolutely no sense no. to them. And I think I would get rid of it. The other thing I'd get rid of is the uh, high income Medicare surcharges, because, again, oh, you can make an argument for that, but yeah, it really makes no sense to most people. You're saying, wait a minute, I'm getting the same insurance as the person next to me, but I'm paying more for it because I have higher income. It's just and it's, it doesn't make a meaningful difference in Medicare's finances. It's not a big deal. Right. And it's just it's an element of complexity that we could do without. And I think it sends the wrong message from a social insurance standpoint. I think the premise of social insurance is it's not means tested. It's something we all contribute to roughly the same and should get roughly the same back, not, oh, you get this and you get this because your circumstance is different. So I'm against that. (laughs) I am definitely against that for social security too. That's yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, yes, yes. So Thank you for speaking with me for so long. My pleasure. Is there anything uh, that you'd like to add that I haven't? No, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, I'll come back and spiel at you some more next year when I publish my book, I hope. (laughs) good. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Um, That's it for today. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Please tune in every Wednesday for new episodes when our expert guests will share a wide variety of knowledge on all things retirement related. See you next week.